One, two, three, go. Hello, and welcome to International Security Off the Page. On today's episode, we are talking about great power politics in the Middle East and the Arab-Israeli conflict, with a particular focus on the period of detente between Washington and Moscow during the Cold War, as well as major power relations in the region today. I'm Morgan Kaplan, the executive editor of International Security, and we will be speaking with Galen Jackson, author of the recent International Security article, Who Killed Detente? The Superpowers in the Cold War in the Middle East from 1969 to 1977. And a little later, we'll go off the page with Aaron David Miller, who is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and is among America's foremost experts on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and U.S. policy in the Middle East. Belfercenter.org slash off the page is where you can find past episodes as well as supplemental reading materials. It is also where you can subscribe to Off the Page on your favorite podcast platform. Galen Jackson is an assistant professor of political science at Williams College. Well, joining us now, we have Galen Jackson, who wrote a fascinating article for us here at International Security called Who Killed Detente? The Superpowers in the Cold War in the Middle East, 1969 to 1977. Galen, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Morgan. Thanks for having me on. Perhaps you could start by telling our listeners a bit about what is this moment in time, this detente from 1969 to 1977 in the region. How did it come about? What were its goals? What's the conventional wisdom and how did it fall apart? Detente is typically viewed as this period where the United States is struggling to find its way in the world in the wake of the Vietnam War. You now have strategic nuclear superiority uh, and everyone's worried about a potential nuclear war, especially just a few years after the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Soviets have to worry about the rise of China and their emerging partnership with the United States. And this is sort of a period where it's seen like the superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union can enjoy a kind of cooling off and maybe even potentially strike up a real accommodation that allows them to relate to each other on a business-like basis. Maybe not become allies or take their partnership to a really deep level, but learn to relate to one another on a power political basis in a way that makes the world more secure for everyone. So how does this play out specifically in the Middle East? Well, the reason I study the Middle East is because I think it shows that the way this whole period is generally held up is more or less incorrect, that the Soviet Union is ordinarily seen as the principal reason for the collapse of detente in the late 1970s, that the Soviets were basically so committed to their communist ideology that they were unable to relate to the United States on a business-like or power political basis. And at least in the case of the Arab-Israeli conflict, I argue that just the reverse was the case, that actually it's the Soviet Union that really is trying to bend over backwards to cooperate with the United States in the area. And it's the United States um, that refuses to cooperate on the issue. And so what is the reason why, you know, if you could talk about why the Soviet Union is interested in cooperating with the United States on these issues, and I imagine we're predominantly talking here about the Arab-Israeli conflict, but also why does the U.S. pull back from cooperation? 
Yeah, both really good questions. On the Soviet side, the Soviets have a real dilemma in the Middle East. They are deathly afraid of another large-scale Arab-Israeli war like the one they just witnessed in June 1967. One, it's pretty clear that their clients, the Arabs, are going to lose. The Israelis were widely seen as the stronger power. More importantly, an Arab-Israeli war always raised the specter of a superpower confrontation one that could conceivably escalate to the nuclear level. And the Soviets had all sorts of concerns that if you had another Arab-Israeli war, you might have to intervene, and that could be very dangerous. Moreover, this is really costly to the Soviets at a time when they're economically struggling. So I think the Soviets have very good reasons to want an Arab-Israeli settlement. The reason the Americans don't reciprocate at least as I see it, is that the American strategy, which is formulated by Secretary of State Henry Kissinger in the wake of the October 1973 Middle East War, that strategy is based on reducing Soviet influence to the extent possible in the region. And in fact, he even says on a number of occasions that even leaving the merits of the Arab-Israeli dispute aside, his principal goal in the Middle East is to move the Soviet Union to the sideline and prevent Moscow from sharing in the credit of reaching an Arab-Israeli settlement. And so that sort of approach obviously meant that a combined U.S.-Soviet strategy for resolving the Arab-Israeli conflict was just not in the cards. And so what's the ultimate effect or outcome of the fact that not only does detente collapse in the region, but that it was particularly the United States' initiative to allow the cooperation between the two powers to collapse? And what was potentially lost? Yeah, I'll I'll make two points here. One, I think, is that this whole period has a real bearing on the way that this period is viewed, particularly among Americans today, and has has a lot to do with the discrediting of realpolitik principles in the United States. That because Kissinger's policy was viewed as part and parcel of a realpolitik strategy, and it was viewed to have failed because the Soviets didn't respond, that sort of thinking was discredited to a great extent. And my argument is that that conclusion is based on an incorrect reading of this period. The other major consequence, I would argue, is that this was a period when there was potentially a real missed opportunity to make more progress in the Arab-Israeli peace negotiations. Uh, Again, the two superpowers wanted more or less the same thing in the Middle East. And even though you eventually do get an American brokered Egyptian-Israeli bilateral peace treaty in 1979, that agreement did nothing about the Palestinian question, uh, about the Syrians. And we, of course, still don't have uh, Israeli-Palestinian peace today in the Middle East. And I think that if the superpowers had been able to work together, there was a real opportunity here, especially after October 1973, to make more progress than ultimately was made. Another question I have is, you know, the history of U.S.-Soviet relations during the Cold War, and also particularly within the Middle East, is a topic that's very well-researched and well-studied. Why does this conventional wisdom hold for so long And what particular pieces of evidence did you find that gave you that moment where you realized actually the conventional wisdom should be overturned or relooked? That is a really terrific question um, and one that I think about a lot. With respect to the first part, I think there's a good bit here that has to do with Winston Churchill's famous quote where he said, history will be kind to me for I intend to write it. And because so much of this period is based on Henry Kissinger's memoirs, and they really are quite remarkable memoirs, you know, it's a three-volume set totaling something like 4,000 pages, it's unsurprising that many people have accepted 
that sort of wisdom. My approach was to go much more deeply into the primary sources and especially into the archival sources to try to get a more unvarnished view of this period. And what's really interesting is if you compare the contemporaneous conversations that people had, uh, the private notes that American diplomats passed to one another, you will find real gaps between the way this whole period was portrayed in places like Kissinger's memoirs and the way people spoke about it at the time. So what do you think is the takeaway of this finding for contemporary politics? I mean, obviously, it's hard to make or hard to take a historical analogy from the Cold War and a bipolar system and apply it to today, to 2020, and especially in the Middle East. But if you had to distill the one policy takeaway that could be applicable today, what would it be? My takeaway from this is if there is an opportunity for a detente with an adversary or to reach an accommodation with your adversary, that opportunity is not going to be seized uh, unless one proceeds on the basis of a realpolitik policy. In other words, putting to the side things like ideology and proceeding on a business-like basis. That, to me, is the reason superpower cooperation in the Middle East did not succeed during the 1970s. And the takeaway for me is Unless you take that sort of approach today, the United States is not going to reach that sort of accommodation with countries like Iran, China, Russia, or North Korea. Fantastic. Well, Galen, I only have one more question for you, and that is, are you ready? Am I ready for what? To go off the page. <laughs> yes, I am, Morgan. If you enjoy listening to Off the Page, you'll enjoy reading our quarterly journal, International Security, which is edited and sponsored by the Belfer Center at Harvard Kennedy School and published by the MIT Press. To learn more about the journal, please check out belfercenter.org is. Aaron David Miller is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Between 1978 and 2003, Miller served at the State Department as a historian, analyst, negotiator, and advisor to Republican and Democratic Secretaries of State, where he helped formulate U.S. policy on the Middle East and the Arab-Israel peace process. Well, joining us now, we have Aaron David Miller. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here with uh, you and Galen. Great. Well, I thought we'd start by asking about your general impressions of the article and Galen's analysis on who killed detente in the Middle East. And I feel like there's not a better person to ask this question to as someone who entered the State Department in 1978, essentially a year after this period under observation ends. And also, you worked in FRUS, working on the FRUS series, the Foreign Relations of the United States. So very curious to hear your perspective on the subject. You know, I, I admit to a certain, what I would call a historical bias here, uh, and it derives from having spent 25 years working on U.S. Middle East policy. That unfortunately, because it leads to a very annoyingly negative analysis of most things, contemporary and historical. My years working for half a dozen secretaries of state on variety of Middle Eastern issues basically colored my view of what transpired during the earlier years, particularly during that period, let's say 1969 to on the eve of Sadat's visit to Jerusalem and beyond. It, it colored my views on what was possible. I would argue not much during that period. It colored my views on Henry Kissinger's role, which frankly, given how hard it is to get anything done, anything done in government, let alone in the Arab-Israeli conflict, Producing three disengagement agreements in 18 months was an extraordinary accomplishment by any standard, and 
it also has led me to the conclusion, and I buy Galen's essential point on detente, that it takes two to tango, that you would have needed a balance of interests. That was not what Henry Kissinger had in mind. His objective, frankly, was to minimize you know, the Soviet role, which he did. But I would argue as important as Kissinger's, and whether this was real politic or ideology, I don't I don't know. It, they could be two halves of the same coin. I think the real reason the Soviets at detente failed, at least as it applied to negotiating these agreements and the issue of American influence in the wake of the 1973 war was that the parties themselves, and not just the Israelis, who were suspicious of a Russian role, although, although Abba Eben went to great lengths at the Geneva Conference to make sure he was photographed with, with Andrei Gromyko, that the parties themselves, including the Egyptians and the Syrians, rapidly realized, particularly Sadat, that Soviets couldn't produce that both of them, yeah, Assad wanted to use the Russians to counterbalance the Americans, but he didn't want to become a Russian client. And they quickly realized that by working with the Americans, they could actually get something done. So the Soviets more or less disappeared from view after the Syrian-Israeli disengagement agreement in, in June of 74. I, I think Gromyko actually showed up in Damascus and Assad wouldn't even see him during Kissinger's shuttle diplomacy. So I, I buy the notion that that was in fact Kissinger's intention. I just don't think that there was much of a prospect for really applying meaningful detente. If by detente, you mean not simply the absence of confrontation, but the presence of a working relationship with uh, Moscow and Washington that, it, that could have produced much more than was produced, then I think there was chances of that happening, frankly, were slim to none. I think it's a really crucial point that certainly you see in the literature very regularly and certainly one that needs to be taken very seriously in any analysis of this issue. My impression with the PLO to start is somewhat different, at least by the sort of 76-77 period. I've seen CIA analyses now that the Soviets were turning up the pressure on the PLO, and you know maybe this is most evident with the October 1977 U.S.-Soviet joint statement. And it seems like the Palestinians were pretty pleased with that. And I, so I'm not totally sure they objected completely to having the Soviets involved. The Egyptians, I think, are a different story. Although I should say my view on Sadat is his dislike of the Soviets stems from mainly their unwillingness to provide him with arms. And I think that does indicate to a real extent the degree to which the Soviets were exercising restraint in the Middle East. But, you know, even if you don't find the point on the PLO persuasive, I think the Soviets did have influence with the Syrians. You know, June 74, it's true, Gromyko gets not a great welcome there, but they recall cover pretty quickly, and they are willing to play a cooperative role there, as Kissinger himself recognized. The other thing is they certainly have the ability to try to obstruct the negotiations. And again, Kissinger gives them a lot of credit for doing so. So I think as long as progress is being made toward a settlement, I don't think it's the Arabs objected all that much to Soviet involvement. And, and at a more basic level, you know, if the Soviets are trying to help achieve a settlement, they're willing to do things like guarantee one. It's not clear to me why you'd want to alienate them needlessly. And even the Americans and Kissinger in particular acknowledge at times that they're willing to play somewhat of a helpful role. I think that all that may be true. 
It's just that the architecture and the regional landscape in sort of deterministic way was weighted toward separate agreements and not just minimizing, but running away from two things. Israelis ran away from any prospects of a West Bank settlement because it would have opened with Jordan and the king was alienated and angry because it would have essentially opened up the prospects of territorial compromise, even if the Israelis were willing to do it, that would have involved Jerusalem. And within a month of the October 77 communique, Sadat figured rightly that Carter was embarked on a strategy that actually took an international conference seriously. Kissinger, of course, did not. It was very little preparation for the Geneva Conference. The Soviets were viewed by Kissinger as a, as potted plants, much the way we viewed the Russians on the road to Madrid in 1991. I mean, Baker staged that conference, even though Gorbachev was there, Bush 41 was there, Pankin was the Russian foreign minister. The, the Madrid Conference was emptied of any real authoritative or meaningful Russian rule. My bottom line point was, and as I look back and having labored in the fields of Arab-Israeli peacemaking for almost two decades, I have come to be you know, fundamentally distrustful because I've seen what happens when comprehensiveness becomes an ideology. Now, I'm not arguing that pursuing a phased set of agreements didn't have its price and cost, but things got done in Arab-Israeli negotiations, minus the Soviet, as a consequence of the party's own calculations. Forget what the Americans intended or didn't. You look at the Arab-Israeli confrontation line today, and you look at it in 1948, and what you see essentially are two separate agreements, one between Israel and Egypt, which is held despite the murder of the man who signed it and an 18-month period in which the Muslim Brotherhood ran the country, so to speak. You have an Israeli-Jordanian peace treaty, which no one ever anticipated that Hussein would be the second Arab head of state to, to sign a full treaty of peace with Israel. And you had a set of Israeli-Syrian negotiations through the 90s, which came extremely close to giving Assad what he wanted, minus 300 yards off the northeastern portion of the Sea of Galilee. And even with the Palestinians, you saw a set of interim arrangements called Oslo, which failed. So I've come to understand certainly the limitations of the approach the Americans took, but it was an approach validated and accepted, however imperfectly, by the parties themselves. And that's why I think it's endured. Just to kind of tie this all together, it sounds like what you're saying, Aaron, is that in some ways, the fact that maybe the U.S. was the one who kind of pulled away from detente, it was in some ways towards a productive end because that is what was required to to achieve those step-by-step negotiations. Is that kind of a correct yeah, way I mean, of thinking I about back, what you're saying? I, you know, I interviewed Kissinger for the Much Your Promised Land book as well as the other secretaries of state. I mean, Kissinger has his detractors in the Middle East. I mean, there are people I know and respect who fundamentally believe that the Egyptian-Israeli two disengagement agreements in the peace treaty essentially was a failed exercise because it virtually ensured that neither the Egyptians nor the Israelis would have much of an incentive in satisfying Palestinian national aspirations, which remains obviously an unrequited and critically important piece of stability in the Arab-Israeli arena. It's just that I I look back realizing how hard anything in the Arab-Israeli arena is to get done. So I may be wrong here because it's an ahistorical argument. 
And Galen is a political science historian who's looking at the evidence. I'm just arguing backwards. And even based on the realities at the time, I just don't think much more than what was accomplished could have been accomplished with or without the Russians. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to be glib about what Kissinger produced, but the, the point Aaron is making raises some interesting questions in my mind, you know, one one having to do with basic power political realities. You know, the United States and the Soviet Union were by far the two most powerful countries on earth at the time. And, you know, in strictly power political terms, seemed to me had the capacity to move the parties towards settlement. Um, as far as I can tell, their views on what a settlement needed to be at least a comprehensive settlement, largely overlapped. And, you know, they they had cooperated very closely on other issues. For example, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is considered a resounding success, even though you would think many countries would want to have a nuclear capability as the ultimate defense. They cooperated very closely in Europe, creating a stable security architecture there. So it's puzzling to me that they're not able, even though they want more or less the same thing here and seem to have the wherewithal to accomplish it, that not only do you not get cooperation, you get increased conflict. And as far as I can tell, that's because that was part and parcel of the Kissinger strategy. So yes, these are achievements and I, I don't want to be too glib about it, but it still raises puzzling questions to me that you could have these outside actors with that level of influence and not be able to engineer a settlement. The more I see of the international community's response Again, fast forwarding, but even then, the more I realize the Middle East is littered, literally, with the remains of great powers who believed wrongly, I might add, that they could impose their will on smaller countries. And, you know, at no point has the Arab-Israeli conflict been amenable. So the notion that somehow the Russians and the Americans could have gotten more from the parties than they actually did, I, I, I think it assumes a certain willingness. It assumes that these leaders were prepared to take tremendous risks. I mean, let's remember, Arafat and Barak negotiated in the same cabin that uh, Begin and Sadat did at Camp David. I heard Arafat say at Camp David at least five times, you, you shall not walk behind my coffin. Rabin was murdered as a consequence of his peace efforts, and so was Sadat. And if you combine the profound risk aversion with the domestic politics, of which Kissinger and Nixon were acutely aware, even though they had much different interpretations. Nixon, I think, was prepared to bring a lot more pressure on the Israelis than Kissinger was. I think you would have had to have the sun, the moon, and the stars all align at the same time, and they haven't aligned yet. So I watched Syria as Exhibit A. The, inter the vaunted international community was either unwilling, uninterested, preoccupied, or had their own specific agendas to preside over the largest refugee flow since the end of the Second World War and willful mass killing on the part of the Assad regime and its security services. I have a, a profound respect both for the weakness of the big and the power of the strong, their neighborhood, not ours. So this is a good of place as any to start thinking forward and talking about actually 2020, right? I mean, you've brought up the case of Syria. We can talk about the current state of affairs in the Arab-Israeli conflict or 
Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. But the question still remains here, and that is, to what extent do the major powers actually matter for outcomes on the ground? And we could think of this both from the perspective of Israeli-Palestinian negotiations now or broader regional issues. But also, is there area for overlap between the United States and other major powers such as Russia at the moment? And could that possibly lead to more cooperation? Or is this dead on arrival? Part of my own analysis, which I concede to both of you is annoyingly negative, flows from the reality that we have a broken, angry, dysfunctional region. And beginning in 2011, it is far more broken, far more angry, far more dysfunctional, far more divided, in some respects hopeless, than at any point in the preceding 50 years. You have empty spaces controlled by transnational groups with millennium-like ideologies. The three Arab states that have traditionally competed for influence and power in this region, Egypt, Syria, and Iraq, are either offline completely, like Syria, or preoccupied with their own problems. The three core actors in this region, the ones that have the power to project their influence abroad, are the three non-Arabs, Israel, Turkey, and Iran. And frankly, if you watch the last several years, and you watch it still in Syria and in Iraq, you've got those powers, with the exception of Russia, which has made its will very clear, beginning with the um, incursion and the projection of Russian military power into Syria. Um, You've got other actors outside of the region, particularly the United States, under this administration, playing a much more risk-averse role. And I would argue to you that for America, not just in the years of the Trump administration, the Middle East is losing its centrality. You've got the unhappy experience in Iraq and Afghanistan. We're weaning ourselves off of Arab hydrocarbons. China is a much bigger threat and focus for American policymakers. And finally, you've got the absence of any single problem that any of us could map out and actually cooperate in solving. There's not a single issue here, in my judgment, that has what I would call an end state. The Russians have been very skillful in Syria. They set up this Astana process with the Turks in in Iran. They've had ceasefires come and go. They've managed the issue of of northern Syria with the Turks relatively well. But Syria continues to defy a solution. The Israeli-Palestinian problem has been made much harder by the articulation of a peace plan that is clearly not ready for prime time. And you've got a a U.S.-Iranian arc of confrontation, which frankly, in my judgment, is not being well managed at all, which has no end state. So I think the Middle East is going to remain a an arena of great power competition, but not an arena in which one power would, would be able to create a unipolar reality. So it's a funny situation. No single power will can dominate the region. And yet the Russians have managed very skillfully, taking advantage of US retrenchment to pick up some points here and there. But even the Russians don't have the capacity. That's the that's the cruel paradox here. They don't even have the capacity to fix all this. It's all being managed, quote unquote, with not a hint that we're anywhere near directing matters or events toward any sort of solution. So I don't disagree with you at all on the changing U.S. role. And that's been one of the major developments of the last, I don't know when you want to date it till, but 10, 20 years. I, I will say, I think there have been some areas where outside powers can play a role, both for good and for ill. So whatever you think of the 
the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear agreement, it's hard to see how an agreement like that could have been reached without major power buy-in. Both the Russians and the Chinese were on board during those negotiations, including for some quite serious sanctions, which may have played a role in bringing Tehran to the negotiating table. You know, even in places like Libya, which you see basically widespread chaos at the moment, you see outside powers playing a quite significant role, even not necessarily the great powers, countries like the United Arab Emirates or Turkey, really shifting the balance of forces in that war. Now, maybe that's having a negative effect, but it does show that outside powers can play a certain role. The Russians, I think, do have, and not to say that there aren't things that you could criticize about Russian foreign policy, but I think that the Americans and Russians do have some overlapping interests to a certain degree. The Russians don't like extremism either. This is one of their big concerns. Now, the Russians did play a role in propping up the Assad regime, which was not what the United States wanted and is backing a war criminal, but it's hard for me to see how you get a stable political settlement in Syria at some point without some sort of Russian buy-in. I think we're seeing that play out at the moment. And on the point about Russia sort of making strides in the Middle East, I think I take a somewhat different view. It's not clear to me what Russia gets out of all of this. And by the way, this is a criticism that I think you could have made of the Soviet Union during the period that my article addressed. So so the Russians have helped in conjunction with countries like Iran turn the tide in Assad's favor. It's not totally clear what they get out of that. You know, Syria is a war-ravaged country at this point. Maybe in terms of status or prestige, they've won some points, but Russia's got some real problems domestically, as did the Soviet Union toward the end of the Cold War. And you know now has one of the largest outbreaks of coronavirus. I don't know in power, political, strategic terms whether the Russians are actually looking as good in the Middle East as you sometimes see portrayed in the press. I mean, I would agree they're certainly not taking over the region, and there's no reason for U.S. panic. You know, Russian gains are primarily a result of our retrenchment, uh, and the Russians are not viewed as an indispensable power. But they're acting in a way that is much more skillful and much more agile than we are. They have relations with the Israelis. Putin has now met 14 times with Netanyahu. And the Israelis understand the logic and the utility of a relationship with Russia. They have a relationship with the Iranians. We don't. I think Assad has played his cards quite well. And I think you're right, Galen, that he's stuck. But keep in mind that the Russians are a lot closer to this region than we are. They have traditional interests, warm water ports. Latakia was the only warm water port at the time of the collapse of the former Soviet Union, and Putin was determined to reassert Russian influence there, which was a traditional area of Russian activity going back 40 or 50 years with the Assads, and to frustrate any effort by the United States to initiate a Pax Americana. He watched as we dispatched Gaddafi. He watched before as we dispatched Saddam Hussein. He made it unmistakably clear by intervening in 2014 to save Assad that he was not going to allow the Americans, and there was no danger, I might add, after the Russian intervention, that uh, despite Barack Obama's 
cries of Assad must go, Assad must go, that we were going to do anything to dislodge Assad, despite the fact that he was <clears throat> remains a mass murderer. So like the Chinese, they have understood that the world is no longer unipolar. And both of them are determined not only to carve out their spheres of influence, Crimea, eastern Ukraine, Syria, but also to delve into areas and with parties that are much more closely aligned still with the U.S. Chinese, for example, even though they don't think in geopolitical terms as the Russians do, you know, have decided to identify five countries in this region that they want to use their economic power and their money to expand relations with. Saudi Arabia is one. The Chinese are the Saudi's largest trading partner. The UAE, there are 200,000 Chinese nationals in the Emirates. Same, UAE is, China is the UAE's largest trading partner. They have a very close relationship with Iran. The Chinese are now negotiating, have negotiated with the Israelis to run the port of Haifa. And the Chinese, again, are using their money to, uh, to cut deals with Egypt. I keep thinking to myself that both Russia and China, neither are going to take over the region, but they both are there in ways they haven't been before. So I think we're talking about a, a region that is still in turmoil and, um, you know, just seems invulnerable to the kind of unipolar you know, sort of fantasies, partly reality that the Americans had in mind for the Middle East during the 70s. So how does this multipolar reality actually influence the ability of regional actors to play off the different outside powers who may be interfering? Because that's like the angle we haven't talked about, agency on the parts of regional states, how they've approached competition over relationships with them. Does this provide more room to maneuver for different states? Or is it perhaps more constraining that more states such as the Chinese, and now perhaps the Russians a little more than in the past uh, couple decades, now have influence again as well? That's a really tough question that we don't necessarily have the answer to just yet. I guess my initial inclination was to say it gives them more room to maneuver. And, you know, I was thinking about the post-1991 Gulf War when there was a real price to saying no to the United States. And the United States was in a position where it could really influence the states in the region to a real degree. On the other hand, to the extent that those outside powers now have the ability to nurture some dependence of the states of the region upon them, there's a trade-off there in terms of what you can get away with in, ex in exchange for external support. You're even seeing that with, like I said, more middle powers, right? So the, the GNA, the Government of National Accord in Libya right now has had to make some concessions to Turkey on things like maritime rights because Turkey is its principal outside patron. So I think there's going to be somewhat of a push-pull dynamic there if we are indeed moving toward a more multipolar system in the Middle East, which I tend to agree with Aaron, we probably are. I think Galen raises a, an excellent point. I mean, to, to some degree, the costs of saying no to the United States have gone way down. Now, I would argue to you, however, that that is not necessarily a new reality. I mean, the last serious foreign policy we had in this country, in my judgment, I'm showing my characteristic bias here, was Bush 41 and Jim Baker, where means were tethered to ends, where the use of the deployment of American power was prudent, wise, and effective. We, we have not been admired, feared, and respected in this region since 1992. 
And the costs of saying no to the U.S., and this is really a paradox, I have to say, in the Trump administration seems to have gone up. None of these Arab leaders, in part for different reasons, want to say no to Donald Trump. Abdel Fattah Sisi of Egypt is a prime example. The Jordanians, King Abdullah, may or may not mute his severity of his reaction. If the Israelis go ahead and annex parts of the West Bank or the Jordan Valley, in large part because he doesn't want to cross Donald Trump. The Saudis are manipulating the hell out of the Trump administration, but there is still a connection there, which the Saudis simply don't want to break, partly because Trump administration has given Mohammed bin Salman an enormous amount of cover to pursue his destructive behavior, not only toward the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, but in Yemen and two years ago in Lebanon. So I, I think Trump has emerged as a larger than life sort of forceful figure in all of this. And he's related well to dictators and authoritarians. They respect that and they don't want to cross him, even though, and this is the interesting feature and the paradox, we see, we seem to be playing less of an influential role in this region than we have for quite some time. He keeps saying, you know, we're spending the latest figure was $7 trillion. And what have we got? So I think it's uh, it affords some opportunity for maneuver, but some of these leaders are, are also quite constrained by his unpredictability and the need to, for reasons sometimes I don't even understand, not to cross him. That brings up the interesting point, given the current time period we're in, we have a, an election coming up. And this interesting paradox, you've brought up the Trump power paradox in the Middle East. To what extent would a potential Biden administration upend that paradox? Or how would it change those relationships you're talking about? Of course, we're talking in the hypothetical here. I think there will be some meaningful changes and some meaningful continuities. I think on the Israeli-Palestinian issue specifically, the change there will be quite noticeable, I think. So Trump, of course, has done things like move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He has recognized Israel's authority over the Golan Heights. He has deemed Israeli settlements in the West Bank legal under international law, which broke with longstanding U.S. policy on that issue. Um, and it seems like the administration won't oppose the Netanyahu government if it decides to annex large swaths of the West Bank. I don't think that a Biden administration would take a similar line on that issue. I think you would see a policy more in line with how the United States has traditionally um, approached the Arab-Israeli conflict. Although there's a real question in my mind of path dependence. Now that the Trump administration has taken those steps, there's a question of whether they can be rolled back. You know, just as one example from the period we were talking about earlier in 1975, the United States gave Israel assurances that it would give great weight to the Israeli view that Israel should not have to withdraw from the Golan Heights. The Israelis, my understanding is, Aaron, maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong, but would bring that document up well into the 90s during Israeli-Syrian negotiations. I think that a Biden administration would probably move to try to reinstate the Iran nuclear agreement. Again, there's a real question in my mind if that ship has sailed at this point, whether the Iranians would still be interested in negotiating that sort of deal. 
On the other hand, I think you would see continuity in the sense that a Biden administration would continue to take a relatively hard line toward Iran and try to continue this coalition or tacit coalition that the Trump administration has tried to erect between the Israelis and Sunni Arab states. Now, some of these goals work at cross purposes, but I think those would be some of the objectives you would see a Biden administration trying to accomplish. I think Galen's done a really good job of summarizing the differences and similarities of a Biden administration and also consider the broader context at um, who knows this virus has a mind of its own. Who knows where we're going to be by the fall, let alone by January 2021. But one thing is certain, whether it's Trump or Biden, the priorities and governing is about choosing. If it's about anything, it's about setting priorities of what's important and what isn't. And national recovery both on the economic side, the societal side, and the public health side, will be, you know, to borrow a Star Trek image, will be the prime directive of the Biden administration. That's particularly for a 78-year-old guy, you know, who may well think of his own presidency as a transitional presidency, a one-termer. I think foreign policy, because it's in Joe Biden's blood, because he represents a certain consensus within the mainstream Democratic Party, the whole question of restoring alliances, relations with allies, countering the fact that we are MIA, in my judgment, in the most significant, probably the most significant global event since the end of the Second World War, will push the administration to raise its profile abroad. But those will be, in my judgment, this kind of easy lifts, restoring confidence of our NATO allies, doing more with the G7, the G20. I'm sure he's going to convene at some point, as he said he would, a kind of community of the democracies conference somewhere in Washington to basically demonstrate that we don't coordinate with dictators and authoritarians. But the heavy lifts, um, that's another matter. One last point, I think the risk aversion with respect to deploying large numbers of American forces abroad, finding a way to get out of the two lo longest wars in American history in Afghanistan and Iraq, there will be more similarities than differences there with the Trump administration. Well, Aaron, we have a bit of a tradition on the show, which is before we wrap up, we like to ask our special policy guest, which of course is you, what advice you'd have for junior scholars, practitioners, public servants, service members, given your long experience straddling the policy, academic, and analyst world? I'd, I'd just give two pieces of advice. Whatever anybody chooses to do in life, and I don't think I will, will ever do anything more meaningful than the 25 years I spent in government, despite all of the failures, all of the imperfections, all of the bad advice provided to Republican and Democratic administrations. But the centerpiece of that experience, the fact that life in a career has to be, in my judgment, to be meaningful, organized around the idea of the we, uh, not the me is something that has made my professional life incredibly meaningful. People who can't turn the M and me upside down so that it becomes a W and it's a we enterprise, I think are missing out on a lot. And secondly, the same piece of advice, probably the only piece of advice my kids ever took from me, was that the happiest people that I know professionally, not personally, but professionally, are the ones who combine passion, they love what they do, with expertise they know what they're talking about. Because passion without expertise can be dangerous, and expertise without passion can be incredibly boring. If you're lucky enough to find yourself 
seek out a career in which you love what you do and you know what you, you're talking about based on a lot of time spent learning and doing, I don't think regardless of what's accomplished or not, you'd look back and say anything but that was really meaningful. And I'm glad I went down that road. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Aaron. And thank you so much, Galen, for joining the podcast today and providing such great insights to uh, keep moving this conversation forward. Off the Page is a production of International Security, a quarterly journal edited and sponsored by the Belfer Center at Harvard Kennedy School and published by the MIT Press. Our program is produced and edited by Morgan Kaplan, the executive editor of International Security. The associate producer and technical director is Ben Craig. Digital communications by me, Julie Belise. Production support by Carly Dimitri. Thanks to our intern, Kendrick Foster, for additional assistance. And special thanks to Hilan Kaplan for composing our theme music. Upcoming episodes and additional material for Off the Page can be found online at belfercenter.org slash off the page. All articles from the journal can be read at mitpressjournals.org slash is.